0: This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear
1: and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.
0: Hello, and welcome to Suite 212, putting the arts in their social, cultural, political, and historical contexts, broadcasting live here on Resonance 104.4 FM, still London's most intelligent and innovative radio station after more than two decades on the air. I'm your host, Juliette Jakes, and today we're paying tribute to another important cultural figure who has left us recently. This time, following on from our shows on Marquis e. Smith and John Calder, it's the Lithuanian filmmaker, writer and curator Jonas Mekas, who sadly died last month at the age of 96, Writing, making new films, and appearing in public until the end. Joining me in the studio today are Chiara Ambrosio and Herb Schellenberger. Chiara is a London based filmmaker and visual artist, working with animation, experimental film, documentary, and sound to explore the ways in which we perceive, remember, articulate, and preserve personal and collective histories and place through the filter of memory and the imagination. Her work includes collaborations with groundbreaking performance artists such as Dominic Johnson and Helena Hunter, composers such as Michael Nyman and Matty Bai, musicians like Amanda Palmer, Bird Radio and Othon, and anthropologists such as professors Chris Wright and Caterina Pascalino, and has been shown a number of venues including Anthology Film Archives in New York, particularly germane to today's discussion, Tate Britain, the Whitechapel Gallery, Southbank Centre, Millennium Film, NYU, Filmmakers Co-op. International House Philadelphia and National and International Film Festivals. Kiara is the founder and curator of the Lights and Shadows Salon, a monthly film salon at the Horse Hospital in Broomsbury, and she also presents Raft, a monthly programme on Resonance 104.4 FM. Herb Schellenberger is a curator and writer originally from Philadelphia and based in London. Since 2016, he has been Associate Programmer for Berwick Film and Media Arts Festival in Berwick-upon-Tweed and has curated film screenings and series at Anthology Film Archives, Light Industry, Lux, NYU, the Topai Centre for Contemporary Arts, Tate Modern and many more. He's written for publications including Art Agenda, Art Monthly and the Brooklyn Rail and the Walker Art Centre's Walker Reader. This year he's curated a double retrospective of the filmmakers Jean Vigo and Ron Rice at the Lightbox Film Centre in Philadelphia and will undertake a curatorial residency at Rupert in Vilnius in Lithuania. Herb, Chiara, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Julia. Thank
0: you. For listeners who may not be familiar with the life and work of Jonas Mekas, I want to offer a short introduction. Mekas was born in Lithuania in 1922, four years after the country became independent for the first time. He left with his brother Adolphus in 1944, as the Red Army advanced into the country, having been involved in anti-Soviet activity before the German invasion of 1941, and then in anti-Nazi activism before the end of the war. The brothers were both imprisoned in a labour camp near Hamburg for eight months, and then escaped, ending up in displaced persons camps for the next four years, described in his recently reissued diary memoir volume, I Had Nowhere to Go. Before Jonas studied philosophy in Mainz in Germany, and then moved to New York with Adolphus in 1949. Two weeks after their arrival, Jonas bought a Bolex 60mm film camera and began to record moments in his life, as well as an American avant-garde art circles and the Lithuanian émigré community, later collected in his 1976 film Lost, Lost, Lost. With his brother, Jonas founded the Film Culture Journal in 1954 and began writing his movie journal column in the Village Voice four years later. He co-founded the London he co-founded the Filmmakers Cooperative in nineteen sixty two, which was a big influence on the later London Filmmakers Cooperative, and the Filmmakers Cinematheque in nineteen sixty four, which grew into anthology film archives, the world's first avant-garde film museum, as well as a cinema, devoted to an underground experimental and art house work, which is still operating in New York after Meccas became its director in 1970. In nineteen sixty four, he was arrested on obscenity charges for showing Jack Smith's queer avant-garde film Flaming Creatures, as well as Jean Genet's 1950 short film Chant d'Amour. As well as campaigning against the censorship board in the US, he launched the Essential Cinema Project at Anthology Film Archives, with avant-garde filmmakers such as Stan Brakhage, Peter Kubelka, and others, to establish a canon of important underground and experimental film works. Famously, he introduced Andy Warhol to filmmaking, and collaborated with John Lennon, Yoko Ono and others. His own prolific film output included a lot of diaristic works. <clears> the <throat> three-hour Walden, notes and, Diaries, Notes and Sketches from 1969, Reminiscences of a Journey to Lithuania in 1972, Zephia Torner in 1992, a tribute to the fellow Lithuanian emigre and Fluxus art group co-founder George Maciunas, who died in 1978 and in 2000, a five-hour film called As I Was Moving Ahead, Occasionally I Saw Brief Glimpses of Beauty. He also published poetry and prose in Lithuanian, French, German and English, along with a number of his diaries and journals. Indeed, Jonas Mekas remains best known in his home country as a poet, but today we're going to be focusing on his film work. So that's an overview of Jonas Mechus' life and work. Um, I want to start off the conversation perhaps by talking a bit about the physical media that Mekas moved through in this incredibly long, uh, I think, 70-year uh, filmmaking career. Uh, I've already mentioned that he kind of started off by just buying a Bolex 16mm camera, uh, which he used to make these kind of long, diaristic films that I mentioned in the introduction. But I wondered if, Chiara um, and Herb, you would like to um, kind of start us off talking about what you like about Mekas's film work and about his relationship with the medium of, of film and video.
1: So... I think um, when Jonas started off shooting film, and black and white 16 millimeter film in the early 1950s, um, film was very expensive and beyond his means. I mean, he was working in factories. He was doing odd jobs to get money. Um, Amy Talbin writes that um, about 10 minutes of... Uh, uh, film stock and processing during this time was was roughly equivalent to a month's rent in in the average East Village um, kind of apartment. Uh, So he had to figure out how to make this film last. And so he developed the technique of kind of shooting a couple of frames here, a couple of frames there, um, maybe changing the frame rate and things like that. Um, making these kind of brief flashes of, um, activity, uh, rather than, um, you know, kind of doing longer take things and stuff like that. And that way of like kind of stretching the film, like really became, um, Uh, one of the kind of signatures of his his filmmaking at least in the first um, period and and it's very um, uh, kinetic it's very energetic Um, it's sort of uh, you know you get brief glimpses of these images of of people of places of things um, uh, flashing by the camera um, that you barely get to kind of comprehend before they're replaced by another image and um uh in a way that that sort of um uh becomes like a metaphor for like the way that our brains process information and that we think about things so it's like a very pleasant um and stimulating encounter to see this like kind of uh filming that he was developing um very um idiosyncratically and very kind of personally but then that would kind of become something that other people would, would take on as well.
2: I find it really interesting. You <coughs> you, you describing his way of filming uh, makes me think also of how his body was involved in it. Sometimes mm. you see glimpses of him filming. Yeah. And um, indeed, he's, he's like um, a strange hunter. He hmm. always looks uh, like someone trying to catch this fleeting things like butterflies or mm. it makes me think of the photographer Lartigue who always talked about himself being a taxidermist of the soul so in in Lartigue's idea ideal world he would be capturing things that were too ephemeral to mm. to um to even describe but you could catch through the medium of uh, light and Mm. and the lens and to me uh, there's always an element of, of that of the body in space agitating and being alive and and Jonas trying to to almost capture a testimony of that being alive in a way that can only be done through you know, a collision, mm. and um, he talks about that over and over in his in his um, manifestos and, and and diaries about um, being a camera and being a projector mm. and being the thing yeah. being filmed. And
1: I think what's so interesting is that he just comes to this medium out of curiosity and necessity and really makes up all of the rules himself. You know, he basically breaks every rule that film school tells you not to break and you know if there's a 180 rule of how you know you're shooting people in front of you and they're interacting he just breaks the 360 rule by turning the camera around and making it into like a, a selfie 16 millimeter <laughs> bolex pointed at his own face yeah
0: yeah i mean to give a bit of context for Mex's filmmaking practice he he kind of he Starts showing his own films in the early 60s. And he obviously, as we've said, is kind of involved with film journalism in the decade before that. Uh, you know, there is a sense that he is trying to be a kind of one person film culture. But he's, you know, he's got a very collaborative spirit, which we'll come back to. But I wanted to flag up um, a piece he wrote for Sight and Sound in 1959. Mm. Uh, where he talks about John Cassavetes' film Shadows, yeah. uh, Robert Frank and Alfred, da- uh, Alfred Leslie's film *Paul My Daisy from the same year, both of which drew on kind of the nascent kind of beat culture in US kind of poetry at that point. He talks about how Shadows was a feature film made for less than $20,000 and that it was at least partly improvised, used direct lighting, actual locations, disregarded plot, and how he found that interesting. He disliked the French new wave that was emerging at that time because it was still quite attached to kind of plot and character and kind of relatively big name uh, stars and directors. There's a really nice quote from this piece where Mecca says, talking about the, the Hollywood or the sort of American Uh, generation that are coming through at this point directors like Robert Aldrich and Nicholas Ray. Mekas wrote let us be frank if Hollywood films seem boring and outdated it's not because our quote unquote geniuses are being kept away from the cinema nor because the scripts are being ruined by producers etc the truth is more simple what we see is their finest work at the top of their intelligence the new generation is coming with a different kind of intelligence an inner intelligence at least they are searching for it and eventually this may be their contribution It seems almost impossible even to begin explaining the difference between free, spontaneous film and a contrived, serious, quote-unquote, official cinema to our professional, official filmmakers, critics and audiences. Because the reason for the lifelessness of official cinema is society itself, which is going through a transitional, decadent period. So Mecha finds himself in the early 60s, Uh, as a fairly central figure in this uh, emerging U.S. avant-garde or kind of underground film scene. Uh, Maya Derren has actually died that year, but her works like um, Meditations on Violence, uh, At Land, um, Measures of the Afternoon, was struggling with some of the titles there. Uh, Maya Derren's works in the 40s and early 50s have been a big influence on a new generation of filmmakers, which includes people like mary mencken greg lee markopoulos ken jacobs uh ron rice jack smith uh and kenneth anger who's also actually been around since the late 40s but mekas i think becomes a figure around which partly because of his criticism his advocation of alternative ways of filmmaking in his journalism mekas becomes a figure around around whom this circle can kind of congregate
1: mm. yeah uh in some senses um you get the the notion that uh the the this was out of necessity um he attended the cinema sixteen screenings of Amos Vogel Marsha Vogel and others um and uh while Amos Vogel was an early kind of champion of the films of um Stan Brackage and other American experimental filmmaker whose filmmaking starts maybe around the mid 1950s um by the kind of end of that decade um amos vogel uh refuses to show any stan brackage films for whatever reason you know they're not to his sensibility as a programmer um i mean amos vogel it's it's hard to understate how important and and pivotal a figure he was but Jonas was saying, you know, Stan Brakhage is one of our great artists. So if we can't get his film shown in what was then like the premiere kind of showcase for adventurous cinema in New York, um, then we'll start our own group. You know, we'll start our own Cinematheque. We'll start our own film distribution group because these films need to be, you know, known. They need to be made. They need to be seen. Um, And it was like out of this necessity um that uh Jonas and others like Jack Smith Andy Warhol Ron Rice they sort of uh, Shirley Clark as well you know they they bounded together um to like make the films that they needed to make and give them like the the whatever platform that they needed to sort of get out there yeah
2: but also I think what's what's he also comes at it as uh, someone arriving from um, about, you know, many years of being um, a wanderer, a displaced person, without um, without much uh, to his name and without any freedom and <coughs> primarily no freedom of express, of physical expression. Mm. And once he finds his first Bolex camera, I mean, it's interesting to rem- remind ourselves that a sixteen millimeter Bolex camera is really loud. Mm. So every flutter that you take Mm -hmm. is an intervention, an interruption in the real world. And I think that it's a really, it must have, I imagine it must have been quite an incredible um, conquest to be able to... Um, take responsibility for the change that occurs in the world when Mm. you actually shoot that that frame and I think that what you mentioned about um, necessity I think I completely agree and I think that it was also a question of responsibility I think he he keeps going back to the idea of um, you know the cinema, what cinema was up until that point, being something that was extremely exclusive and tailored towards, you know, uh, a particular way of storytelling, you know, the myths, the archetypes mm-hmm. that, that, you know, people want to hear and and learn through. But he was advocating for him and, and all, all his milieu, they were advocating for another kind of cinema, cinema that would um, allow them personal expression and through the personal um also, access universal truth. So it's mm. the epic versus the the personal, and how can you make the personal epic? That's a really interesting shift in in film around yeah. that time.
1: And 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 the kind of motto of the filmmakers co-op when it, you know, when it was developed, was um, they they're an open submission group. So um, at the filmmakers co-op, your film is your membership card. So when you send in your film um you are now a member uh there's no sort of vetting of of what that is um th- that's of course changed over the years but that was like the the sort of philosophy and there was also a collectively made film um for life against the war in 1967 um which was i think something about 60 different filmmakers making short um like up to 3 minute kind of segments of of pro life pro-vivality anti-vietnam war um statements you know so it wasn't necessarily um that they were just showing how war and tanks and soldiers were bad they were saying this is what life should be this is what you know vitality and 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 vivacity should be and
2: also presence because these are all people that to some extent or other were censored in their existence mm. you know and marginalized and i think that it was a really powerful way of putting yourself back in the frame um especially at a time where um, New York City as well was so divided in terms of what was visible and what was invisible certain you know the area where eventually um anthology began was a no-go zone it was a place where there were raids on a regular basis and people didn't want to live there um and it's not just about becoming visible for your own benefit but it's become it's about taking response collective responsibility to make a whole other reality visible um and i think jonas mentions the idea of remaining disorganizedly organized so remaining extremely independent but making enough noise um through their camera through their screenings through the you know through the building works of restoring an old jailhouse into mm-hmm. a new auditorium so that they couldn't be erased they couldn't be unseen and they could occupy the space they wanted to occupy
0: yeah I mean that sort of brings up something that I wanted to talk about briefly, which was the you know you mentioned kind of police raids and the police raids on the screenings of Jack Smith's film flaming creatures um where the film was kind of censored screenings of it were shut down meccas would would hold screenings precisely to make that kind of noise. Uh, I just want to read a bit of susan sontag's essay on on flaming creatures, which is is quite interesting in her take on on meccas um Sontag writes, The police hostility to flaming creatures is not hard to understand. It is alas inevitable that Smith's film will have to fight for its right life in the courts. What is disappointing is the indifference, the squeamishness, the downright hostility to the film, evinced by almost everyone in the mature intellectual and artistic community. Almost its only supporters are a loyal coterie of filmmakers, poets and young villagers. Everyone should be grateful to Jonas Meckes, who almost single-handedly, with tenacity and even heroism, has made it possible to see Smith's film and many other new works. Yet it must be admitted that the pronouncements of Meckes and his entourage are shrill and often positively alienating. It is absurd of Meckes to argue that this new group of films, which includes flaming creatures, is a totally unprecedented departure in the history of cinema. Um, such truculence does Smith a disservice, making it unnecessarily hard to grasp what is of merit in flaming creatures um, I think that 's a bit harsh, although we should we should note also that Jack Smith had very mixed feelings about meccas 's support for for his work and I know he um, Jack Smith referred to Mechas as uncle fishhook uh, <laughs> until <laughs> until Smith died in 1989. i 'm not quite sure what Jack Smith meant like that like a lot of uh, jack smith 's um pronouncements it's it 's kind of Slightly slightly surreal and, and a touch kind of cryptic. Um Flaming Creatures, for anyone who hasn't seen it, is an extraordinary kind of queer, improvised, uh kind of ensemble piece about half an hour long, which begins with this act of kind of brutal sexual violence before giving way to to this kind of very beautiful kind of celebration of free love between these these kind of queer outsiders. But I think that speaks to what we're talking about about Meccas's um kind of capacity for myth-making, his relationship with visibility and being underground, um and his, his you know, his strong support for his his circle of filmmakers.
1: Yeah, the legend is um at the experimental festival in Nokla uh, Belgium, um, which was I think nineteen sixty three or four, it was sometime around the um release of Flaming Creatures, uh the the film was then banned there from being shown and that jonas um took a 16 millimeter projector into his hotel room and did kind of private screenings of it um there because it you know it needs to be projected it needs to be shown people need to see this film uh, that that kind of thing wasn't going to stand so
0: let's t- no. no let's uh let's move on to Mecca's Mecca's films um yeah. themselves because obviously they deserve in-depth discussion i think three of the diaristic masterpieces as i've mentioned earlier are warden or diarist notes and sketches reminiscences of a journey to lithuania and lost 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 uh, warden was shot in new york between in the mid 60s 64 to 68 um, and there's this real sense of mecca's escaping from narrative constraints and conventional film technique the title was taken from henry david Thoreau, but as Macus's friend, the film critic Jay Hoberman, points out the spirit feels like it's closer to like Walt Whitman and the kind of beat poets that we we mentioned earlier. That it resembles the written <clears throat> diaries of Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac, etc. The program notes for the first screening were were quite interesting. Had this sort of ambivalent letter from the director of the presentation saying, You are going to see maybe two, maybe three, maybe four reels from a total of six. It would depend on your patience, on your interest. <clears throat> um, these these avant garde filmmakers from Mechas' circle are quite prominent. You see a lot of Stan Brackage in the film. Uh, you also see the filmmaker and musician Tony Conrad, the actor and filmmaker Beverly Grant at home. There are a couple. You see early Velvet Underground performances. You see, at the end of the film, Lennon and Ono's bed-in from 1969, and there's also an extraordinary scene called Notes on the Circus, where Mekas gives this real kind of Bactinian, kind of carnivalesque shot of this this circus, long, long segment of the film that's really worth seeing. But he also captures a lot of everyday life, weddings, a young girl in the street picking dandelions and so forth. Um, and that... Hoberman says that Warden and Lost, Lost, Lost contrast in that Warden is a diary and Lost, Lost, Lost is a memoir. The first two reels of that film show the Lithuanian neighbourhood in Williamsburg, where the Meccas brothers settled in New York. The next one show the birth of the beat community and these political protests, and then the last two in rural Vermont. But it tells a powerful story about an immigrant's rebirth in the US. Um, sandwiched between those two films is reminiscences of A Journey to Lithuania, where the Meccas brothers... Look back on their early days in New York after moving there in 1949, a family reunion in the village of Semenyskaya uh, in Lithuania, where they were born, and a trip through Germany and Austria, where they revisit some of the displaced persons camps and labor camps where they were after leaving Lithuania. They're back home after 25 years, long after the post Stalinist Thor. Jonas Mekas was on a Soviet watch list in the 1940s due to some of the poetry he'd written. And it shows the relative poverty of the Mecca's family. His mother frying potato pancakes in an outdoor oven. Uh, his siblings doing field work with these old-fashioned tools. Um, so those are the kind of three of the films that really made his reputation in the sixties and seventies. His sixteen-millimeter works. And I wondered if either of you had anything you'd like to add on on those works.
2: Well, something you just mentioned about um, the family. It. I. I always wonder how much. Um, you know, some of. You talked about Walden being um um diaristic and um um lost 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 being a memoir, but you always have this question of time that is um um that is challenged with, with Jonas's work because for example Walden too and his early work anyway are all um a re encountering of images at a later moment. So in a way there's this um unsynced sound that um, calls into question um at what point um the, n- the narrative is Im- is is introduced in, in the in the picture. And there's something really interesting that happens together with the displacement of time, to me, is um, challenging of fiction, the canons of fiction and of um, documentary, which is also something that incidentally, I always think about when I watch um, Str- Stranger Than Paradise, um, uh, Jim Jarmusch with John Lurie, and you see this um, community of displaced Hungarians in New York, and that's, you know, really a, a, a fiction film, um, but at the same time you have this this absolute truth of the space that they're occupying, and their bodies are, are absolutely, really, you know, those of, of um, immigrant communities in a new city so there's always this question that i find really fascinating in Mikas' work and not just in his work but in a lot of the filmmakers who operate in new york from the you know from the 60s onwards really of what is real and who decides what's real and um what kind of m- stories are they telling and what kind of myths are being introduced and why you know is it um is it an attempt to conquer something that has been lost and not just in terms of uh, not just geographically lost but um you know lost something we we as human beings you know long to go back to which is this idea of um belonging belonging to somebody, belonging to yourself, belonging to a wider history than yourself. So this is something that I think the films share, you know, and all of his films really share. And um, I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean,
1: just uh, the only thing I would say is there's so many moments from each of these films that you can just kind of, you, you want to pluck out of them and you want to capture these images or the sounds or, um the text that is up on the screen mm-hmm. or the things that jonah says or sings with an accordion or <laughs> yeah. bits of classical music i mean notes on the circus is so mm-hmm. great and it has that uh, the music by jim queskin and the jug band like which is like uh, in a way it's 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 such a corny um it, they were like a kind of Greenwich village sort of new ragtime kind of um band but like uh, the the it's basically the associations that you get from kind of um pairing those images with the sound and so of course like this is a song uh and band that i've become obsessed with because of that um you know the you encounter people through his films. Ed Emshwiller is a favorite filmmaker of mine, mm-hmm. um, and he, you know, uh, he's shown and in Walden and Mikus is whispering M. Emshwiller. It's the stupidest, <laughs> name. which you know? recalls the voiceover in Emshwiller's
0: film Thanatopsis, yeah, one of my favorite yeah, films yeah. to come out of this yeah. period. Um, uh.
2: And also, in a, I remember watching a Journey to Lithuania and. The bit when he starts um, introducing Hermann Nietzsche, mm. and do you, do you remember when he says he bought his castle? Yeah. And this idea of Nietzsche himself mm. being such a such an insane character yeah. in the way you encounter him retrospectively through history, but there he's just this this benign man with no no blood, no, none of the humours.
0: Hermann Nitsch being part of the Vienna Actionist <laughs> Sorry, Group, yes. this very kind of visceral avant-garde group. And um, whom
2: you often encounter in a scene of like absolute, um you know debauched sort of you know naked bodies and blood yeah. and things that see...
0: transgress kind of popular values but also landed them in quite a lot of legal trouble that the yes. actually Yes screwed. and yeah. Con- yeah. you know um, and and to do if, so. yeah, yeah
2: and and there you see him as a as a almost like a large child together with Peter Kubelka walking the streets of Vienna and and really sort of just sharing a, a meal and 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 having these moments that you are uh, Allowed to share, and these moments become as important as those Mm. seminal images.
1: Yeah, just just to briefly point out that I mean, there's a whole other film that Jonas has called "Scenes from the Life of Herman Nitsch" from 2005. It's a 58-minute film. None of us have seen it. It's not really that. You know, he has plenty of films that just like kind of aren't readily available, um, but that, you know.
0: Well, the, the um, last of the big diary films, I think, is as I was moving ahead, um, I briefly saw, um, occasionally I saw brief glimpses of beauty, uh, and I wonder if either of you quickly had anything to add on on that. I haven't seen it. I've never seen it.
1: You're the only it one does. I think out of us Well, it's, it.
2: it's very Well, in, in many ways it's very similar to Walden, except that it's a lot longer, it's five hours long, and it's, it focuses on his family. Uh, life, so um, it introduces you to um, the per- you know it, it explores this idea of the extremely personal. It's even more personal than personal. You don't encounter characters that you know from popular culture. It's it's really strictly his family, but still you are allowed to. Um, Fly away with with this idea of what it means to be human. There's one title card that he uses that is really incredibly profound for me, and he 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 sort of guides you with these title cards. And one of them says, um, "Look look look! Oh God, it's try to find look into nothing to see what's there." Basically, yeah. I'm paraphrasing it; it's not exactly. And it also kind of follows the idea that Jonas had of life. He always said that. Um, He comes from light, he goes back into light, in the middle there is mud with some (laughs) flowers in it. (laughs) I think that's just a wonderful way of um, talking about his filmmaking technique.
0: So he moves into video and digital filmmaking, um, I was going to say towards the end of his life, but actually several decades before the end of his life. so Herb, I wonder if you wanted to just, I mean, I haven't seen much of his digital work, yeah uh, but I wonder if you wanted to spend just a couple of minutes
1: telling the audience about that. Sure, so um, uh, at some point in the 1980s, um, uh has said 1987 is when he got his first video camera, but he is making, um, uh, he's made uh, one, his first video work is self portrait from 1980. I think that was with a borrowed camera. In 1987 he gets his Sony his first Sony video camera of the first of I'm sure many um over the intervening decades um and he he actually writes um with his film um a letter from Greenpoint from 2004 um you know he says it's it took me about 15 years to master the Bolex camera um at which point you know I felt like uh I I had a handle on it and he said he didn't realize when he picked up the sony video camera in nineteen eighty seven that it would take just as long for him to kind of really have the proper time and and uh uh practice with it to to yeah be the master of this so he he considers a letter from Greenpoint from two thousand four two thousand five um his first major video work that's what he says, but I mean there's so many. Amazing works that he's made before then and since then um, on video. I think um, uh, It obviously changes the economy of of filming um, because video is relatively inexpensive to to film on Um, And also you have sync sound which we've talked about before um, Being a sort of distinctive part of the filmmaking the the non-sync sound Um, so uh, there's sound it's live there are long takes you can spend time with people you can you can record entire conversations um uh there are works like um another work that none of us have seen um called the education of sebastian or egypt regained from 1992 um his son sebastian um appears in lots of his films and this is a 360 minute video (laughs) six hours um he has several video works this long um uh and i think another important um development is um jonas's uh interest and exploration of um, the internet and online space too so his major work for um like his website Uh, was in 2007, called the 365 Day Project. Um, And this was when he decided in 2007, I'm going to make 365 short films. So one for each calendar day of the year. Um, So each film got posted that day. Um, it could have been recorded the day before on video or it could have been revisiting film footage that was um, you know transferred onto video uh, from decades earlier Um, some there are lots of Lots of alternate versions of things we might see in other films. There are lots of kind of seeds of of what uh, might become later video works in there. Um, they could be one minute long. They could be 40 minutes long. Um, in total, that um, uh, runs about 1,800 minutes or uh, 30 hours. Well, so. we're
0: going to play one minute of one of the films now. Yeah, you know. uh voice is very important to his films. Um, this extract from this film we're going to play... It's a short film he made about Paris Hilton, uh, where Mekas is just pointing the camera at himself and talking about Paris Hilton, so we could just play a brief extract from that.
3: I have to admit to, to you, and you will find it very strange, why I was thinking today about changing one's mind. <laughs> you won't believe me, but it's all the papers, writing and uh, making jokes about Paris Hilton, Paris saying that she changed, that she's not what she was two days ago, three days, changing her mind and everybody making jokes and, you know, that's that's about her saying this.
0: So that was an extract from Jonas Mekas, um, the Lithuanian filmmaker and poet, who is the subject of today's edition of Sweet 212 here on Resonance. 104.4 FM. Uh, I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and I'm talking to the filmmaker Chiara Ambrosio and the curator and critic Herb Schellenberger um, about Mekas' work. I want to move the conversation on now for the next kind of seven or eight minutes to Mekas' work with Anthology Film Archives, which continue to the end of his life. So Herb, I wonder if you'd like to um, to talk a bit about the, the energy and the enthusiasm that Mekas poured into this project.
1: Sure. So, um Jonas had been running the Filmmaker Cinematech um, on Charles Street uh, first I think on Wooster Street um, and this was a, a sort of um, you know place where he could organize screenings of independent filmmakers um, people who are traveling and coming through um, you know his work isn't even really discussed too much in terms of being a film programmer or you know what we now call film curator or whatever um, and anthology film archives uh, was the idea to make a museum of film in New York and a museum devoted to the new kinds of film that he was interested in um, and associated with uh, to show um, films to have a library of material which was things that he had accumulated in the years um, actually in the five or so years since the mid sixties when he donated all of his first materials to the um Museum of Modern Art, he acquired so many more things that it requ- <laughs> it required a film archive to uh to hold all these materials. Um so in nineteen seventy was when they founded Anthology Film Archives, Jonas and Stan Brackage and James Broughton, you know, his his kind of filmmaking associates and P. Adam Sidney, who was a a critic and um, writer um, and this was uh, yeah not only a showcase but it was a, it was a, um, a place where film preservation could take place and this was from their um, earliest moments they were they were concerned with film preservation Jonas always said I'm not an archivist I just never threw out anything <laughs> And so this is this is, you know, um, what we can think of when we think of the collection at Anthology Film Archives. Of course, there are amazing film prints, um, you know, amazing library materials, books, letters, um, screenplays, you know, manuscripts. um, But there's also uh, Allen Ginsberg's beard in a bag. Um, there, you know, there is um, uh, anything under the sun that you can think of um, and uh, this is the spirit to, through which um, Anthology Film Archives kind of still continues today and Jonas was um, you know, up till now, the sort of artistic director, the sort of guiding voice, even though he might not have been involved in the day-to-day um, uh, operations of it he, he was very much present there at screenings and, and um you know as as a as a a guiding force to the institution yeah.
2: and i mean i remember what's really interesting is i um before they took over the building on second street and second um the same building had been used by peter Schumann and bread and puppet to mm-hmm. rehearse you know bread and puppet the incredible um radical puppet company that started in the 60s late 60s in New York City and were very much involved in a similar e- ethos to um, the, the to Jonas's and Peter Schumann and Jonas became great friends mm. they're about the same age Peter Schumann is just a little bit younger and I find it really fascinating to think about how the building itself has become a receptacle not just of um, content of physical content but also of this incredible you know soul uh, you know an accumulation the, the tr- you know a said Implementation of yeah. of um, countercultural stance mm-hmm. of this courage, and I wonder how. Um, how important it is to have a place like that that is still alive. Mm. You know, obviously Anthology is privately owned. They bought the building from the city of New York. Yeah. And um, they bought it at a time when nobody wanted to live there. Mm. And they restored it. It was in a terrible state, but they took responsibility for it at great cost. They had no money. Every year they have to fundraise to keep it going, to keep the expenses going. It's still run pretty much that way. You were talking about the extension to it. And yeah.
1: Well, but it's notable to say also that the the building's initial use was as a courthouse, the 2nd Avenue courthouse, um, and this was actually the same court where Jonas was in court for his um, uh, trial for flaming creatures, and so he went back later and he bought the place, <laughs> um, and it's amazing, and, and uh, you know, they've they they renovated it into a two screen cinema. Um, they've always had a problem with sort of library space. There's kind of never been enough room mm-hmm. for all the materials that they have, um, and so it's been Jonas's long time uh, mission to to um, add a floor on top of the building, um, and then they also need to add um, uh, disability access to um, the theater. And the upper floors. Um, they also want to add a cafe as like kind of another means of income. So this sort of capital project to raise the money, the the, the millions that are required to do this, um, has been in progress for years. I was watching uh, um, one of the videos on Jonas's website of him talking with John Waters in 2014 and he says, uh, you know, I'm going to all my friends now and saying, you know, we need your support. We need your support too, John Waters. Uh, you know, we <laughs> (laughs) we we need the money for anthology and this is my next mission. And he he's he's been tireless in, in raising these funds and they've, Come in, and uh, you know they're approaching the time when they can complete this renovation. And it's
2: vital to have a space. I just want to say, like in London, you know, we have the Horse Hospital and spaces like that. It's so important to protect space, and it takes a person to take responsibility um, for its running. The, just like Resonance, you know, it is there is no culture without individuals actually taking it upon themselves to make this space continue. Continuity is vital to the development of culture.
0: Yeah, I mean, in London, I think as well as the horse hospital, I think we're also very lucky to have the close up film centre in Shoreditch, which is an amazing um, film DVD library, cinema, in fact, where I've seen I saw a three hour screening of Warden there a year or two ago. Uh, very much in the kind of spirit that Meccas is working himself. Uh, on my one trip to New York in 2015, I made a pilgrimage to Anthology Film Archives. It was kind of top of my list of things to go to in New York. And I saw a documentary by a musician and filmmaker called C. Spencer Yeah, called 2002 from, from 2015.
1: Amazing video. Just
0: documenting yeah. various underground bands and musicians that he saw in 2002, which was kind of round about the time when I was not only going to a lot of underground gigs, but kind of making a faltering attempt to be in a kind of underground post-punk band. And uh, so that was that was a real joy for me to see, and it was a real testament to the openness of that space, the variety of the work that could be presented there. Uh, I want to move the, publica- the publication, I want to move the programme, the discussion, uh, onto Mekis' publications, hence the the Freudian slip, because um, I want to spend the last 15 minutes of the show talking about Mechus's writings and his his legacy. I think a nice way to open this section might be to have a reading um, from Chiara of uh, mekas's 100 Years of Anti-Cinema Manifesto.
2: Yes, this is Anti-100 Years of Cinema Manifesto. Some are talking about the end of history. There are others who say that we are at the end of cinema do not believe any of it. And the movie industries and the movie museums around the world are celebrating the 100th anniversary of cinema. And they talk about the millions of dollars their cinemas have made. They discuss their Hollywoods and their stars. But there is no mention of the avant-garde, of the independence, of our cinema. I have seen the brochures, the programs of the museums and archives and cinematechs around the world. I know that cinema they are talking about. But I want to talk. I, but I want to take this occasion to say this. In the times of bigness, spectaculars, 100 million movie productions, I want to speak for the small, invisible acts of human spirit, so subtle, so small, that they die when brought out under the lights. I want to celebrate the small forms of cinema, the lyrical forms, the poem, the watercolour, etude, sketch, postcard, arabesque, triolet, and bagatelle and little songs. In the times when everybody wants to succeed and sell, I want to celebrate those who embrace social and daily failure to pursue the invisible, the personal, things that bring no money and no history, art history or any other history. I am for art, which we do for each other as friends, for s- for ourselves. I am standing in the middle of the information highway and laughing because a butterfly on a little flower somewhere, somewhere, just fluttered its wings. And I know that the whole course of history will drastically change because of that flutter. A Super 8 camera just made a little soft buzz somewhere on New York's Lower East Side, and the world will never be the same. The real history of cinema is the invisible history. History of friends getting together, doing the things they love. For us, cinema is beginning with every new buzz of the projector. With every new buzz of our cameras, our hearts jump forwards, friends. Jonas. (laughs) I mean, this is through and through his um, legacy, really. The idea that you are indeed free to make the work you want to make. You know, of course, you have to find a way to survive, like everybody has to find a way to survive. But he's an incredible example of how many ways you can find to survive. And uh, the main point of it being that you don't survive alone, you survive in a garden. You know, you have to root yourself in common ground. And by looking after each other, you are looking after your own development as a human being and sustain, you know, um, you know, you're nurturing everyone, including yourself um and the writing very much like the film is a constant uh, reminder of of this i mean he kept diaries i think mm. until uh, throughout his whole life yeah.
0: Um, well yeah i mean the most recently reissued of those was um have i i i had nowhere to go which was reissued last year but i think originally published in the 1970s and it's a fascinating document of his decision to leave lithuania in 1944 as the red army were approaching um Mekas and his brother Adolphus had found a way to survive in Lithuania during the Nazi occupation. Um, I mean, I want to want to raise some of the criticisms of Mekas that came out around this last year in an article by Michael Casper for the New York Review of Books in which he cast some doubt on Mekas's sort of Positioning of himself during the war as somebody who was just kind of wandering Lithuanian forests and kind of keeping out of politics. The most concrete accusation that Caspar makes against Meccas is that Meccas published poetry and essays in a pro Nazi newspaper that was um, that had published some anti Semitic material, although Caspar is very careful to emphasize that Meccas did not write any of this material. Um but really, I mean, I know this, this, this article caused Mecca's quite a lot of um, upset and some health problems. Mekas' friend Jay Hoberman, I think, wrote some quite interesting pieces about it, um, both last year and in his recent obituary of Mekas for The New Yorker. Um, Hoberman says, To tell the truth, I always found Jonas hard to read. It wasn't his Lithuanian accent and halting delivery so much as his enigmatic effect, puckish yet steely. Was he a sly peasant, a sophisticated cosmopolitan, a wise fool, or an international man of mystery um and certainly, I think with Meccas. He was somebody who really positioned himself as being quite apolitical. It's very easy to understand why somebody who had grown up in Lithuania in the 20s, 30s and 40s would be very suspicious of people who take strong ideological positions on anything. And it's very easy to understand why somebody whose country was, you know, like most countries in Eastern Europe at this time, um, carved up between Hitler and Stalin. Um, I can certainly understand how he reached that kind of mindset. Um what hoberman found more troubling was was comments on the nazi filmmaker lenny riefenstahl in 1974. Uh, Meccas wrote at the time here is my own final statement on riefenstahl's films if you're an idealist you'll see idealism in her films if you're a classicist you'll see that in her films an ode to if you're a nazi you'll see in her films nazism Um, the only riefenstahl film i've seen is uh, olympia um, the Documentary about the 1936 Olympic Games. And whilst it's nowhere near as explicitly ideological a film as, say, Triumph of the Will, um, it's not difficult to spot the connotations um, of the way Reef and Stahl kind of films the bodies, focuses on German athletes, brings in some of the politics around the athletics. Um, Susan Sontag was, was quite critical of, of this assertion in her fascinating fascism essay published in the New York Review of Books in 1975. Um, Hoberman also sort of talks about the way Mecca saw uh, Viet Haaland's propaganda film Jesus, in 1940 and interpreted it as a kind of anti-Nazi and pro-Jewish film because he felt that Harlan's film showed the Jewish character as the only kind of honourable person in the film, um, which is quite a strange interpretation of the film, I think. And again, I think maybe speaks to the pitfalls of viewing things kind of very consciously detaching them from their kind of ideological, political context. Hoberman wrote, I don't judge Jonas. Almost all of us, each and every day, are bystanders to all manner of atrocities. During the occupation, Germans and Lithuanian nationalists murdered nearly 200,000 Lithuanian Jews, some of whom Jonas might have personally known. Yad Vashem lists approximately 900 Lithuanian righteous amongst the nations who actively protected Jews. Some of the righteous were killed by the Germans, others by their fellow Lithuanians. Jonas, then 20, was neither the best nor the worst. Who could ask this kid to risk his life, or to fully understand the terror set loose on Lithuanian Jews? There were plenty of extenuating circumstances. Youth, fear, the fog of war, concern for his family, perhaps the fact that as a Protestant, Jonas was himself a member of a minority even less numerous than Lithuanian Jews. Um, writer Barry Schwabsky replied to this Michael Casper article about Mechis, um talking about... Um, saying it was dismaying to learn of Meccas publishing his works in such vicious company as the newspapers we mentioned earlier though we probably shouldn't be surprised to learn that this was the price of publishing anything at all other than clandestinely in occupied Lithuania Um, Hoberman's obituary written earlier this year, said that this stimulated Mekis' last major work, a monumental interview he recorded with the US Holocaust Museum, Mm -hmm. in which he shared his own recollections of his life in wartime Lithuania. The interview, which runs more than six hours, is hard to get through. It reminds me a bit of Lithuania and the collapse of the USSR, the five-hour video that Jonas made from tapes of television news segments. It's also hard to pass perhaps only michael casper could begin to do so but it brought jonas's project full circle giving him the last word on the long life that he spent documenting and also i should say living so i think that's quite a generous um generous take on mechus's um kind of final works and and legacy and the hoberman obituary is notable for the way it places mechus's wartime experiences and the difficulties and ambiguities of those uh within a kind of a long and very productive life i think it's also worth mentioning that in i had nowhere to go meccas talks about the first country he tried to go to being israel because he really wanted to help the jewish people rebuild their society and both him and adolphus were quite disappointed and quite sad that they couldn't couldn't go and join in that project um and they they made other attempts to, to go to israel before finally deciding to settle in the US. I think it's also worth worth noting that um Mechas was one of the first people to show show in its entirety, Claude Lansman's mm-hmm. film about the Holocaust in nineteen eighty five, and made a point of showing that at um at Anthology Film Archives. Um so we've got five minutes left. Um I know it's kind of difficult but i wondered if we could just kind of sum up our thoughts about Meccas at this point kind of everything we know about this this long and incredibly complicated and quite rich life that um that has recently come to an end um i just want to kind of conclude today's discussion with with some final thoughts on him
1: well um in in terms of writing and, and publishing um it's really been in the last five years that we've had uh, numerous editions um uh, either newly available or um, available after um, many years of being out of print. Uh, movie Journal um, was republished in 2016. His writings, uh, a selection of his writings from the Village Voice columns, um, which is amazing. Uh, um, I Had Nowhere to Go, like you said, was republished um, in 2017. There are, um, by my count, like four new major volumes of his work. Um, Scrapbook of the 60s, A Dance with Fred Astaire, The Legend of Barbara Rubin, and Conversations with Filmmakers. And in 2019, already there are two new editions um, to be published, uh, Words Apart and Others, um, which is a a selection of poetry um, uh, compiled by the Brooklyn Rail. Um, and I Seem to Live, Diaries 1950 to 1971. Um, So the, you know, we're we're still, I think in this last period, Jonas was um, really conscious of trying to um, be, get a lot of these words out of him. um, And I think we'll still be seeing the fruits of that um, in, in subsequent years to come, yeah.
2: I think, personally, I am, you know, he's been an incredible inspiration for me, not just as a filmmaker, but as a human being, you know, our lives are uh, lived and experienced through collisions. And I think what's interesting about him as a filmmaker, but also as a curator and as an as a. as a man in space really is that uh, by intercepting other people you are creating ripples you're creating stories and in scrapbooks of the sixties there's all these incredible encounters he has with artists from all kinds of backgrounds you know there's a beautiful conversation about John Cage there's a beautiful conversation with Peter Schumann people who were his friends but who were also happened to share his space. and there is no easy way of doing that you have to actually um, take you know t- take your right to exist in exactly the way you want to exist and in his case I know he he found it really hard to have to fundraise constantly for the space to continue to exist it wasn't an easy feat at any point you know it's not easy for anybody to try and keep something alive all this time but I think it's definitely worthwhile the attempt because the there are very young people you know whenever I go to anthology I was there the last time in in December I've you know it's one of those places where you have extremely young people meeting you know people from other generations and it's a continually renewing world that is necessary for everybody and I think that it's really important.
0: Yeah I mean I you know just to to sum up I my, my experience of Jonas Meckers watching his films, meeting him briefly in person at the British Film Institute last year on his final visit to the UK, you know, found it to be a sort of extraordinary, generous um, spirit. Somebody who was, was very interested in, like you say, kind of younger filmmakers creating an environment in which people could work and somebody who gave an awful lot. Um, certainly, you know, it's, it's clear from the writing about about his time in lithuania um during the war that he you know he really kind of struggled with this legacy he had a very ambivalent uh, attitude to it um i can tweet out the Hoberman piece after the show uh but somebody who spent the whole of his kind of adult life in the in the us working ceaselessly to promote interesting voices um promote kind of politically relevant work as as well some of the works we've talked about whether it ranges from the oblique politics of flaming creatures through to the more obvious politics of the group film about the Vietnam War, uh, to works like Lord Landsman's Shower. Somebody who was incredibly, incredibly generous and energetic in in creating a, a really kind of vibrant film culture and and somebody that I think we're really going to miss. That's all we've got time for today here on Resonance 104.4 FM. This has been sweet 212 talking about the Lithuanian filmmaker, poet, curator, Jonas Mechus, um I've been your host, Juliet Jakes. Thanks to Chiara Ambrosio and Herb Schellenberger for joining me today. Um, Tom Overton will be back next week. Um, same time, same place, Monday, 2pm. So hope to see you all there. Take care. Goodbye. <laughs> This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.